There are two passages of scripture for us this morning, so I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 19, and then from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. So from Matthew 16, starting at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he said to his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. And then from Acts chapter 2. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Hello, Elevation family. What an honor and a privilege it is to uh, be able to speak to you all today. Uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Kristen, and our family has been a part of Elevation since 2016. And um, I help out the uh, pastoral team by preaching from time to time. Today we're starting a two-week series called Why Church? And during these next two weeks, we're going to explore the question, what good is there in gathering together as the church? This is a question I found myself wrestling with during this strange COVID season, and it's a question that I've heard bubbling up among my friends. Let's be honest, this COVID season has been a tough one for church, and not just our own church, but the church at large. The pandemic disrupted church as we knew it. Suddenly we were meeting online or meeting in Zoom or not meeting at all. And some people have loved this change. My librarian told me with glee that she loves Zoom church. She would be happy to do Zoom church forever. And for some of us, church became a light in the eternal present of the pandemic, a central place to focus and connect and anchor ourselves. I know for me personally, having our neighbors group was a huge help for me uh, in feeling connected to our church body. And I was really grateful for that. Really grateful, grateful for you, Kitchener West. Hi, everybody. Um, but in other ways, this disjointed virtual reality of this new kind of church has also brought unbidden a rethinking of the purpose of church. Why do we do this? Meet week after week, 
Why not just follow Jesus spending time in the word or listening to worship music or serving others or, or listening to podcasts? A spiritual director friend told me that her clients are giving up church in droves. In the absence of in-person gatherings, many are discovering and reclaiming ancient Christian contemplative practices and are embracing other modes of worship that don't require going to a church building to gather with others. They're finding that these practices are deeply meaningful and um, are supporting their spiritual health, and they're rethinking their engagement with a once-a-week church gathering. I think there's merit in this sort of questioning. I think there's a space to step back and ask, what is this thing called church, and why do we do this? We need to shake out some of the cobwebs, um, and we need to shape, shake out some of the old practices of spirituality that we've just taken for granted and perhaps have started treating as an obligation. My goal today is not to defend or entrench the status quo ways of doing church. I think it's important to embrace the invitation of this moment to refresh and remind ourselves what, after all, is the central purpose and good of church. In this way, hopefully, we can move forward in healthier ways. We can re-engage the practice of meeting as a body, gathering for corporate worship with a renewed vision that shakes off the dust and embraces what is living and good about church. So we're going to embrace the question, why church, in two parts. This week, we're going to study what it means to be the church as ecclesia, and next week, we're going to study what it means to be the church as koinonia. You might have heard these Greek words before, and we're going to unpack them further over these next two weeks. So let's dive in today with church as ecclesia. Let's study what this word means, and let's start by looking at the moment that many say Jesus created the church. It's the first time we see the word ecclesia in relation to Christian church in the scriptures. And we find this mo moment in Matthew 16 in the passage that we read today. Jesus meets with his disciples near Caesarea Philippi. This region where Jesus is meeting with the disciples was originally called Paneus, after the Greek god Pan, whose shrine was located in that region. And biblical scholars tell us that this region was particularly pagan, meaning that they worshipped lots and lots of gods and goddesses. And of course, the prefix pan means all, every, whole, all-inclusive, including everything, uh, all-encompassing. It's a prefix that we're all too familiar with when we use the word pandemic, something that is all-consuming. And so it's in this location with the backdrop of pan and religion that includes many, many gods that Jesus turns to his disciples and asks, who do people say I am? Jesus is certainly causing a stir and people have all kinds of theories about who he may be. People think that Jesus is John the Baptist incarnate or one of the major prophets like Elijah or Jeremiah come back to life. But then Jesus presses his disciples further and asks, who do you say I am? It's so interesting to me that he would ask his disciples this, because you would think the fact that they have left all their jobs and their families behind to follow him would imply who they think he is. You would probably take for granted that they believed in Jesus. They certainly believed enough to give up their livelihoods to be with him. And yet, Jesus asked them to make their belief explicit, 
to speak their belief, to take it from the inside and to put it on the outside of them. Who else but the disciple Simon pipes up, good old Simon, first to jump off the boat, first to proclaim the gospel. He, he jumps in and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In that moment, Simon is testifying to Jesus as more than a rabbi, more than a prophet incarnate, more than the sum total of the pantheon of gods worshipped in that region. Jesus is the Messiah, the, God, the Son of God, the one true living God, the one we have all been waiting for. Jesus turns to Simon right then and there, and he changes Simon's name. He says, bless you, Simon, son of Jonah, because you didn't get this knowledge from any man. My father in heaven has revealed this to you. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And right there, that is the moment theologians say that Jesus created the church. We read the word church in this verse now, and we can miss the significance of it. We're so used to the word church. And, and when we read it in this verse, immediately it conjures up images for me of maybe modern expressions of church. Maybe without even realizing it, we're, we're automatically thinking of meeting in church pews and gathering in gyms and potlucks with delicious crock pot meals or Bible studies in the church basement. But we have to remember that at this time, there was nothing like we understand to be the Christian church. At th that time, there were the Jews who gathered to worship Yahweh in the temple. And there were the Gentiles who worshiped their various gods and many different shrines and temples. And then there was this man, Jesus, and his ragtag group of followers. But there wasn't anything like an organized group of Jesus followers with doctrine and theology and, and an institution so in that verse, in that moment, when Jesus is speaking to Simon Peter, and he says, on this rock, I will build this church, the Greek word in the original text is ekklesia. So he says, I will build this ekklesia. Now you may have heard this word before, but it's made up of two parts, ek, which is a preposition meaning out of, and a verb, kaleo, signifying to call, hence to call out. So Jesus is saying, you are Peter, the rock, and on you I will build a gathering of people that I will call out of culture and call to myself. Other interpretations translate that word to be the verb part of the word to be invitation. So to be the church is to be invited out of something and invited to someone. So let's just stop for a moment and imagine the disciples there speaking with Jesus huddled against the backdrop of this pantheon of gods and religions in that area. And each one of those gods is speaking a story over the people who worship at their altars. Each god is weaving an identity for these worshipers, a way of being in the world. When Jesus creates the ecclesia, he's inviting his disciples and every single person he touches to come out of that pantheon of gods. He's calling them out of the plethora of stories and narratives and worldviews and identities. He's calling them to himself. What does it mean to be the church? 
It means that we are a people who are being called out of the narratives, politics, stories, identities of our current culture. We're being called to not a doctrine, not a religion, not an institution. No, we're being called to the person of Jesus. And this calling precipitates a reaction in us, a movement from us. So what do we do with this calling toward Jesus? Well, we do what the very first ecclesia did in Acts 2. We can't help ourselves. We just start gathering together. Sure enough, just as Jesus promises, Peter goes on to preach the first sermon that forms the first church. It's Pentecost, the 50th day after Passover. And the disciples and many other Jesus followers are gathered together to worship. Luke, who's the writer of Acts, tells us that a mighty wind blows through and sweeps through the place and tongues of fire begin to dance on every person's head, man and woman alike. Luke says they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to preach the good news of Jesus in different languages. They go out into Jerusalem and they continue to preach in these foreign languages. And because it's Pentecost, Jerusalem is filled to the brim with Jews from every nation under heaven, the Bible tells us. So these Jews start hearing the gospel in their own languages from these humble Galileans who certainly do not have the kind of education that would teach them these languages. And then Peter, he takes the mic and he preaches a sermon to end all sermons. He just lays it all out, the entire story of Jesus and the good news of God's salvation. Peter is not pulling any punches, and he preaches it straight to these Jews. He tells them, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. <laughs> he is intense. And what do the Jews do when they hear this? They are so moved that they plead with the disciples, What shall we do? Please tell us, what shall we do? Peter tells them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Luke tells us that 3,000 people were baptized that day. 3,000 people. And once they were baptized, they got down to the business of being the ecclesia. They gathered together. They dedicated themselves to the teachings of the apostles. They wanted to keep learning all that they could about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. They worshiped together, they broke bread together, and they ate together. They prayed together, they lived life together. They sold their possessions and gave to the poor so that no one was in need. And Luke says that the Lord added to their number every day those who were being saved. The church grew, and it grew, and it grew. This was the first manifestation of ecclesia the called out people that Jesus said he would gather and build into a movement when he spoke to Peter in Matthew 16, 18. When I was school-aged, my mom used to send my sister and I out the door in the mornings with this single instruction. Remember who you belong to. And I could never figure out if she was trying to tell me to remember that I belonged to the rights or that I belonged to Jesus. I imagine she meant both. I believe my mom's instruction is one answer to the question, why church? Why do we go to church? Why do we gather together? Why do we keep giving our time to church? 
because it helps us remember who we belong to. We gather together to remember whom we've been called to. Another way of saying this um, is a way that theologians talk about it. And, And that is that going to church is a way we remember the story we belong to as the people of Jesus. Alastair McIntyre writes in his book, After Virtue, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of, of what story or stories do I find myself a part? The truth that McIntyre is putting his finger on here is that there are stories operating over and above us all the time in culture, society, politics, education. They're all making claims on our imaginations, telling us who we are and who we should be. Jamie Smith calls these the cultural liturgies. Cultural liturgies play out in advertising and entertainment and community events and in different forms of education. And they're not anything to be afraid of. They're just a fact of, the, of a matter. It's just important that we're aware of them. Think about when you go to the mall, a place all of us have visited at least once, I'm sure, in the last month, thanks to Christmas. I want you to close your eyes for a moment and imagine yourself there at the mall. What do you see when you're walking down those hallways? What do you hear? What do you smell? Uh, I can answer that for you. You smell Cinnabon or Aunt Annie's soft pretzels. They are calling to you. I think it's a lot of fun, and I have nothing against malls, but we have to be honest for a moment that every single mannequin in a mall, every poster, every window display is telling us a story about what the good life is. It's shaping our imaginations and our taste buds (laughs) about what we should or should not want. It's shaping the desires of our hearts. It's calling to us. And when we have so many voices calling to us, it can be easy to lose sight of the one true voice calling us. Meeting together as ecclesia is a way that we consciously take charge of which voice is calling us. Jamie Smith writes, discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. And I might add that gathering together as a church, choosing to participate in corporate worship, meeting together as a body week after week, whether that be virtually or in person, choosing to learn together and grow together, that is a way that we curate our hearts. That is a way that we are attentive to and intentional about what and who we love. So ecclesia means a gathering of people who are called out for, from somewhere and called to someone. Next week, we're going to study koinonia. We will talk about how after uh, Jesus has called us out, God then forms us together in fellowship so that he can send us back into culture, society, our jobs, our lives, our marriages, our families, He can send us back into those places as his body, his hands, and his feet in the world. But for today, let's rest here in this deep truth that Jesus has called us to himself. And one way in which we respond is to gather as people marked by the Jesus story. We gather weekly to remind ourselves who we are.
And like Simon Peter, as people who believe in Jesus, we've been given a new name. And sometimes we can forget that in the chaos and the hustle and even the beauty and the splendor of our busy modern lives. What is that name? Well, John tells us uh, that we are now no longer enemies of God. We are now called God's children. He writes in John 1, verses 12 through 13, Yet to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in Jesus' name, Jesus has given the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So that is our new name, child of God. This week, May you hear the voice of God calling to you through Jesus, calling you to himself over and over. Child, my child, come.